Good morning. Let the conversation begin here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. It's going to be a high in the 80s. It's going to be humid. It may rain. So no matter where you go, ignore the gloom and have WIP, 94 WIP with you. Always good conversation. And when we come back in just a bit, lots to do. So stay tuned. My name's Peter Solomon, the WIP Time, 601. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon, and what a week it's been. We bid a fond farewell to the fabulous Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin, and to Senator John McCain, two people who have had a major impact on our society, each in their own way, each who have contributed to the dialogue that makes America a great place. Now, onward to the guest. My guest this morning, first up for conversation, is an amazing man who has made people laugh with his show, TV's Impractical Jokers, James Murray. Well, he's up to something new, his new novel, Awakened. Good morning, James Murray. Good morning. How are you, sir? I'm fine. All right. You're known for TV's Impractical Jokers, but yet in Awakened, you're doing something very different. Why? Uh, I wrote this thriller called Awakened. It's this uh, fast-paced, action-packed, page-turning, summer beach-reading kind of book. Uh, The crazy thing about Awakened is I I wrote it 14 years ago before Impractical Jokers. And uh, if you know the story of Jokers, you know that the guys and I on the TV show were regular guys, as you can tell. <laughs> uh, we, uh, we weren't cast in the show. We weren't discovered. We just worked really hard for a long time until we succeeded. And uh, we didn't know anybody in the business. The book is the same story. I wrote the book 14 years ago. I spent a year writing this thriller, Awakened. And at the end of the year, I sent it out to every publisher in New York. But I didn't have an agent or a manager or a lawyer. And it got returned to me unopened. They wouldn't even open the envelope to read it. 14 years later, because of Jokers and our fans and how amazing they are, I was able to sell the trilogy to HarperCollins. So it's a pretty cool story. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But I would have thought you would have done something, given your comedy bent, to comedy. And this is far from comedy. Hello? Hello? Hey, I'm sorry. I am in the middle of a country, the countryside in, uh, in, in uh, the U.K. right now. Right. So okay. if the phone cuts out, my apologies. I'm at the mercy of... Uh, uh, of a foreign country. Not a, not a problem. I would have thought, though, given your comedy performances, you would have written comedy, not a thriller. Well, well, you know, people like, you know, hey, Murray, you wrote a, a horror called Awakened. My, my, my response to them is this. Uh, one could argue that Impractical Jokers is horror, not comedy. I mean, you see what they do to me on the show. They give me prostate exams. They pierce my nipples. They shave my eyebrows. This is terrifying stuff. <laughs> All right. Where's the inspiration from all of it come, whether it's Awakened or whether it's the TV show? Uh, it's all from imagination. You know, being in New York, the, the book is uh, uh, takes place in the near future. Uh, new York City builds this new subway system line called the Z train. It's like fast and, and um, a bullet train, if you will. And underneath the East River, they built this just underwater visitors pavilion, glass and steel, underwater. Uh, the inaugural run of the train, when uh, uh, on the train itself is the mayor's wife, 100 lucky New Yorkers. In the pavilion is the mayor, the president's press covering the event. When the train rolls into the underwater pavilion, 
All the passengers, including the mayor's wife, are missing. The cars are covered in blood, and the windows are shattered outward. And what you come to learn in Awakened is that what's going on secretly underneath New York City is far more terrifying than anything you could ever imagined. So it just comes from imagination. It comes from being in New York and commuting every day in the subways and thinking, gosh, this is crazy, you know, or commuting to work to film jokers. That's where it all, come, all comes from. Did you used to watch horror movies as a kid? I loved horror movies. I guess so do. I'm a huge horror fan. Obviously, they've had an impact on what you do, whether yeah. it's TV or the book. For sure. For sure. Well, you know, we, we've done a lot of uh, shout-outs to famous horror movies in the TV show. I mean, you know, we had Joe dressed as the, the girl with the long hair climbing out of the, the television set, like in the movie The Ring. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we, 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 we do horror homages a lot. We had, uh, 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 anytime we do stunts on set, the guy that played Fred, uh, um, Jason Voorhees from... Uh, from the Friday the 13th movie. He's our stunt guy. He's, you know, he trains us with anything that we need to we, we love The four of us love horror and we love comedy. What is there, though, that you think attracts us to horror? I think it's flip sides of the same coin, you know? Uh, uh, also, I'm terrified when I do the things on Jokers, so it's natural to live in that fear. But I think we've just... Um, you know, uh, uh, horror and comedy are really flip sides of the same, same coin. Something that's horrific pure comedy very easily and vice versa now you say awakened is part of a trilogy yeah it's going to be every summer for the next three years there'll be a new awakened book come out and the cool thing about it is that i mean you know the book i it's one of those things that when i wrote the book and, and no one would even read it because i didn't have any contacts you know you start to internalize the failure you think that you think that you start to doubt you know maybe maybe the book's not good even though nobody read it maybe it's not good maybe you know and uh and then 14 years later, for it to now be bestsellers, like a, a vindication that, you know, if you stick with it, if you believe in something, if you love something, don't stop. Just keep going. Keep going. Don't stop. And don't let other people define your success or limit your success. Good advice, certainly. Yeah. What's, what's the secret of writing, though? Because for some people, writing comes very easily. And for other people, it's opening a vein and bleeding on a page. Which do you think <laughs> it is for you? Uh, it's, a, I think, a mixture. The, the activation of anything is always painful, you know. Like, uh, to create something new is always uh, a passion. It has to come from a deep place, and it's hard as hell to do, that's for sure. And um, I think it was, uh, it took a year. I, I did not realize how hard it was to write a novel. Because everything needs to be thought out, everything needs to be, and then as you write stuff, you have to go back and rewrite when you realize, when you think of something better or something different to do, you have to go back and kind of change things constantly. So it's, uh, it was probably the hardest I've ever worked on a single project in my life, uh, other than, of course, Jokers, which is how we're, we're not going in, so continually work hard on, but um, it's, a, it's the most I've ever worked on a single What it, what... Was the inspiration, though, to get you writing? What gave you that push? I take my inspiration from, uh, you know, the initial inspiration came from, very simply, I came from work, and uh, 15 years ago, you'd take the subway, connection to the track, and you focus on the car with no water conditioning, you'd just be silent. And yeah. Any nibbles from Hollywood for bigger like little screen? What's that? Any nibbles from Hollywood, bigger little screen? That, that, well, that's the plan. 
that we, we go out and pitch it as a TV series uh, this fall. So that, that, that's the exact plan of it, is to develop it as a TV series or eventually a movie. Got anybody, got anybody in mind to play your hero? Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I was talking about this yesterday. I think, uh, I think Hugh Jackman would be an amazing mayor. Uh, Sal and Q from Jokers would be uh, the, the, the amazing as the, the diesel train operators. Uh, I, I would probably play a creature that tears everybody to shreds. Who knows? <laughs> These creatures in Awakening, Awakening yeah. before, without giving too much, outer space, supernatural. No, they are neither. They are neither supernatural. They are very much part of the evolution of life uh, here on Earth. Uh, but it's uh, underground. Is Will the future books continue with the same characters, or will there be a whole new spooky thing? Yeah, no, the, it is a continuation of our characters that have been radically changed in book one for the better or for the worse. And really, really the book uh, really awakens is about obsession. So you have the, the mayor on one hand whose obsession has led to a lot of these chain, uh, chain reaction of events. And on the other hand, you have our archvillain in the whole series, uh, this guy named Alvin Van Ness, and he's obsessed in another way. With uh, and his obsession has led to a lot to this, the, the 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 crazy events of book one, two, and three. So it is a story about obsession and how it can either destroy you or or raise you up into becoming a, a better person. And, and which what, one will win out? And what's your obsession? Well, that, I, I very much wrote the characters uh, based on my personality, which is I, I get obsessed with everything from Joker's to selling TV show to to touring, to doing a Joker's movie. I, I get obsessed with things very easily. So I try to capture that obsession in, in, a, in a work of fiction while also capturing the, the energy and the relentless pace of an actual emergency as it unfolds in real time. So the book reads like the very best episode of the TV show 24 with Keeper Sutherland, if you remember that. It's just relentless. It grabs you and doesn't let you go. That, that it's, it's the most fun fast-paced uh, read you'll ever have in your life. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning is James S. Berry. You may know him from TV's Impractical Jokers. Well, now you get to know him from his new novel, The First of Three, that new novel being awakened, part of a trilogy, which is going to scare the bejesus out of you. My name's Peter <laughs> Solomon. Now, James... Which is going to be more important to you, a good review or a royalty check? <laughs> I say good reviews. I, I feel I feel a, a huge responsibility to our fan base to not let them down. You know, so uh, the book. I you, I think you, you a lot of fans buy the book because they want to support the guys and I, which which we I I can't thank them enough for. But then once you read the book, you're like, all right, this is really good. It's it's really exciting. So I think they'll they'll come because they're fans and they believe in us. And want to support us, and I feel responsible to them to make sure I deliver a great product. And, uh, and I think they'll be, be really pleasantly surprised that it's a great, great book. How come there are no women in Impractical Jokers? <laughs> because we went to an all boys high school. <laughs> That's why <laughs> the guys and I from the show, we've been friends for 30 years. We met thir- when we were 13 years old in high school. If there were girls in our high school, we probably 
A, there would be girls on the show, but B, we probably would never would have created the show because we would have been dating much earlier. I didn't start dating people like 18 as a result. Hmm. Um, so was coming to an all-boys high school help or did it hurt? Well, in terms of being a prankster, a jokester, it definitely helped because there's nothing to do other than rip into each other, as boys do when they're in high school, you know? So uh, I think it helped with our careers now, but it hurt in that we are very much like a rest of development. You know, I'm single, I live alone, I still sleep with a blankie. <laughs> so, you know, I'm 42, so I definitely didn't advance as a, as a man very much from high school. But then again, I made my career with my best friends from high school, so there you go. Well, that's good to know that friends can stay together through thick and thin. That's an important yeah, message right there. Uh, it's the secret. It's the secret glue of, of the TV show. It's it's um, it basically the show is not a prank show. It's a um, it's really is a buddy comedy. It's just my best friends and I having fun and doing what we always do since high school. There's a fine line though between practical jokes and cruel humor. How do you how do you walk that line? Well, you know, the, 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 our show is we what we did is we the typical we spun it upside down because in prank shows I don't like. I don't like that comedians are trying to get the public. And our show is the opposite. Uh, we're trying to get each other. The public is just there to witness our embarrassment. So I think that's why the show really works uh, comedically, because uh, nobody's hurt in the making of our show except for the four of us. Uh, and we're willing participants. So you, you, it takes away that element of a prank show that people don't like, which is you feel bad for the person. And our show, you can't feel bad for us. We're, we're, we're doing it voluntarily. So and it's not like Jackass is smarter than Jackass. It's... Um, it's, uh, I think people like it because it's, it's just good old-fashioned laughs. Like, you know, you come home from work, and despite all the craziness going on and how much people argue, all right, so it's about everything, our show stays um, good and pure, and it's just good old-fashioned laughs. Like, you used to come home throughout the day. That's what the Jokers is. How did the manuscript survive, though, for the book Awakened? I mean, yeah, I would have think in 14 years. It survived on my computer. <laughs> okay. For 14 years. <laughs> but computer, computers crash. You hit the yeah, wrong key I, and it goes bye-bye. <laughs> hmm. I, yeah, this, you know, I, I, I had to save somewhere. <laughs> Good for you. Um, what do your colleagues, the guys on um, Impractical Jokers, think about the book? Yeah. I'm sorry, the phone cut out. What did the guys What did the guys on the show think about the book? Well, so 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 only Q and my mom read it be 14 years ago. Q loved it. Sal and Joe, they haven't read it yet, but they will one day, I'm sure. We were going. I'm sure it'll be a punishment on the show in some way. I'm sure they'll <laughs> use the book against me somehow. <laughs> you know. Okay. Um, do you have other books in mind besides the trilogy? Yeah, for sure. Um, I uh, I'm working on two other books horrors as well, thrillers, standalone thrillers that take place. One takes place in the Grand Canyon, the other takes place in the woods of West Virginia. So we're working on that now. Hmm. Fertile imagination there. Where do you think that comes from? Uh, imagination is, you know, it just, just, just comes from being a creative person. The guys and I all deal with different things and love creating everything, you know, so obviously he wrote a, a great novel comic book called Metro, uh, Sal does a lot of solo stand-up in addition to our uh, Impractical Jokers tour, which we tour the country doing. And then uh, does write a children's book and does a ton of charity work uh, as well. So it's just another expression of, of us as individuals. If you were told, well, James, 
You need to choose between the show or the books. Which would you give up? No, it's, it's not that. that. That that will never be a choice, you know, because there's no – it would never come up. But, I mean, of course I would choose the TV show. It's, it's, these are my best friends. I feel not only a responsibility to our fans but to my best friends. I would never let them down. Friendship's really important to you, isn't it? Of course. It, it, the loyalty among your friends is, is what makes our show special. I want to say thank you to James S. Murray, TV's Impractical Jokers, his new novel, Awakened. Pack it yeah, for... you, can get it at, you can get it at awakenednovel.com or anywhere or in stores. Thank you, James. Thank And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon, the WIP Time 624. Good morning, and the conversation continues as we ease on into WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. You're listening to 94 WIP. It's going to be a warm day. It's going to be humid, a little bit of rain. So no matter where you go, take us with you, and it'll be a good day no matter what. And I'm pleased to welcome here to WIP Sunday author P.J. Tracy. You may know the name. It's a combination of thriller, mystery, and a little, maybe a little romance, too. Good morning, P.J. Tracy. Good morning, Peter. How are you? I'm fine. How do you describe what you write? Well, I think you did a very good um, summary there. It is a mystery. It's police procedural. It's a techno thriller, just straight thriller, kind of a hodgepodge. And, yes, there's a little bit of romance, just a wee bit. Okay. Tell me about the new one. The new one is called Guilty Dead, and I always begin writing with the premise that what makes mysteries so um, enduringly popular is that they are always dealing with secrets, and everybody has them, and everybody likes to read about somebody else's. So um, this, the book begins, it's, about, it's basically about a, a very powerful family dynasty and the secrets that they keep. And it begins with a, a beloved patriarch um, found dead from a suspected suicide on the one-year anniversary of his son's drug overdose. But as the detectives um, investigate, they realize it's murder. And so um, the entire book is sort of um, unraveling um, their dark family secrets and trying to figure out who would kill this beloved man. Totally out of your fertile brain, or something else gave you the inspiration? Well, you know, I inspiration is everywhere. I can, you know, see a piece of gum on the bottom of someone's shoe and get an idea. So, um, you know, it, it is, you know, it's very much imagination. But um, I, I'm always, I'm an obsessive observer, and you just watch people, and, you know, you're in the grocery store, you look, see somebody, you make up a story about them, and that's sort of how these, that's sort of the genesis of every single book. Now, this is book number what? Book number nine. Whoa. Yes, it's a long-running series, and I'm right now just finishing book number 10 in the series. So it's been around a long time, and, um, yeah, love writing the characters and uh, just love the, the genre. As Mr. Spock would say, live long and prosper. Are you gonna... <laughs> right? <laughs> we can only hope, right? You see book number 37 someday? Oh, my Lord. Well, I'm not going to live that long, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, book number 37. Yeah, I, I can't do the math right now because it's a little too early for me. Probably not 37. Hey, if I make it to 20, I'll be happy. 
But of course, you know, when you when you do a series, um, even if how much you love the characters and love the genre, I think it's always important for writers to take a little break and do standalone or something different because it keeps up your writing chops and you learn new things about the process and it's a def- different way to exercise your creativity. So I think I do have a standalone somewhere on the horizon. Okay. Um, where'd the inspiration for the characters come from? Well, when um, PJ, I'm um, PJ Tracy is a pseudonym for a mother-daughter writing team. PJ was my mother. I'm Tracy. And um, sadly, she passed two years ago, so I'm continuing the series without her. But um, the characters um, actually, you know, obviously in a mystery or procedural, you have to have two cops, uh, you know, a team of, of cops, Mangozzi and Gio in this case, but um, their counterparts are a group of computer geniuses and very eccentric geeks called Monkey Ranch, um, which the series is named from. And I guess basically when my mother and I were crafting the characters, we just wanted to write characters that we'd like to meet at a party. You know, somebody interesting, somebody fun, somebody you really can't figure out the first time you meet them. And, of course, you know, all the characters have little foibles, but they, too, have secrets. So it's always fun with each book to reveal a little bit more about um, some of their very dark pasts. What, though, do two nice ladies, you and your now-dead mother, know about murder and mayhem? I don't know. I guess it's in our DNA. Actually, you know, we've always been big fans of the genre and, um, you know, forever and ever and ever because I think, you know, it's it's solving puzzles. And I think that's really, you know, it's it's hardwired into our DNA to solve puzzles. And um, we also have a lot of experience. Um, PJ worked for county attorneys and police for many, many years, and so we have a lot of people in, you know, both federal and domestic uh, law enforcement um, in our family, you know, friends and in our family, so it was, I guess it was just murder was kind of always with us, and it always is with us all, and as far as the computer, the techno aspects, um, likewise, um, I have many, many friends um, that sort of mirror monkey wrench, um, you know, super geeks hackers, you name it. So, um, you know, it, just, it seemed like a really fun combination to throw the law enforcement and the cyber aspects um, together, especially, you know, in this world, you know, the digital world we live in. Well, absolutely. But the cyber stuff requires a certain technical knowledge, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, it does. And But mo- most importantly, it requires a lot of great people you could ask questions <laughs> and we certainly have a little stable of those i mean i have some technical knowledge but i certainly don't know how to hack but um the fun thing about writing fiction especially when dealing with um technology is that basically if you can think of it if it's not in existence it probably will be and I'll tell you a uh, story about um, a hacker friend of mine. Not a bad hacker. He's a good hacker, cybersecurity fellow. And I had written something, and I showed it to him. And I said, is this even possible? And he told me, he said, no, but wait until tomorrow. That's true. Things do change almost every day now in the computer world. Oh, they really, really do. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's, it's, it's so hard to keep up. And, you know, from the time you um, start writing a book, it's a year-long process. 
So, you know, it's always, you're always working hard to make sure that what you write about isn't obsolete, you know, by the time the book is actually published and in print. That's interesting. A year-long process. It is, yeah. I mean, it takes a year to write a book, and and that's, I mean, I wish I had five years to write a book, but, you know, the way it is is you do a book a year. So it takes a year to write a book, and then they really like to have a full year um, to go through the process. I mean, there there are so many moving parts to a book, you know, not just, you know, the editing and the copy editing, but also, um, you know, promotional things. Um, you know, placement in stores, you know, the sales. So it's really, you know, it's really a, a huge, huge process. What's it like, though, when you walk into a bookstore and see your face and your book? Oh, you know, it's it's such a rush. It is the most amazing thing. And I remember when Monkey Wrench came out in 2003, and that was their first, the first book, and you know, it was a big bestseller. And I remember we were on book tour, and... You know, I'll never forget this. We were in Europe touring, and we were walking through Heathrow Airport, and we looked, and it's like the book was in the window, and it was just crazy. I mean, it's 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 really a thrill, and it still is. I mean, nine books later, you you know, you sort of get in here seeing the books, but yeah, it's still it's still a great thrill. I have the best job in the world, and I'm so fortunate. We ever going to see any movies or TV? Oh, I think, you know, the people are asking all the time, and it's really tailor-made for, like, a Netflix series or a movie, and it's been, you know, we've had options for TV, options for movie, and, you know, it's Hollywood. You could wait 20 years, and it might get made, or it may never get made, but, yeah, it's definitely out there. I mean, we're certainly pushing it, because um, I think, you know, it would, it would just be perfect. I mean... You basically have a you know a built-in set of highly developed, interesting characters, and lots of great high-concept plots that are you know current, topical, you know dealing with the the cyber world. So keep your fingers crossed. I certainly am. How did you fall into writing? I mean, writing was something that I think I almost came out of the womb doing, and it was the same with PJ. Um, you know, we always joked that um, we started writing from the time we could hold a crayon. And, you know, that's that's certainly it. It was just, you know, PJ had always written and I had always written. And sort of how we started our collaborative process was when I was about three at bedtime, story hour. And, um, you know, we'd read a book together and then PJ would say, well, let's let's make up our own book. So, you know, she would give me the first line, I'd do the second, and we'd go back and forth and, you know, write a little story. And then we'd act them out with my stuffed animals. And, you know, it's, you know, obviously the process, you know, became a little more complex later, in later years. But that's how we started. So, you know, I think it's just writing is a compulsion. Sounds like there's a hereditary component, though. I, well, I think there really is. You know, I mean, if you're a creative person, I think... You just, you know, sometimes you just have to put pen to paper, and it kind of keeps you sane. <laughs> if 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 I am sane, I'm not really sure about that. Are you a computer writer or a paper and pencil writer? You know, I am a computer writer, and it wasn't always this way because I I am old enough so that I wrote my college thesis by hand and then typed it on a typewriter. And um, I thought I could never use the computer. And then now I, I don't think I can write, 
you know, um, because there's something, you know, now there's something about the thought process where I actually have to see the words, you know, bold and bright and print, and that kind of helps my um, creative process now. But PJ um, always wrote by hand first, always, always, up until the day she died. Mm. And you're listening. It must be a, a generational thing. Absolutely. What the, what would you do if I took away your computer? My computer? Yeah, I'm going to take it away. Well, then I would have to relearn how to write with pen and paper, and I certainly would. I mean, I and if you took away my pen and paper, I'd find a stick and a sandy beach somewhere and write that way. So it's really a compulsion in some respects. It really is. I mean, I I feel I write every single day, and. By every day, I mean every 365 days a year because I love it so much. And, you know, it's Christmas, and we'll do the gift opening, and then I'll run back home and get on the computer. So, yeah, it definitely is a compulsion. I mean, it's just I, I can't even imagine if I lost the ability to write. It would be the most horrible thing I can imagine. Does it come easy to you, or is it hard? I mean, some people describe well, I mean, writing as Writing, a- I could write 5,000 pages, you know, tomorrow um, but plotting, and especially, you know, particularly complex plots and mysteries are, um, that is a lot of work. So that doesn't come easy. But, um, you know, the writing itself is. I mean, if somebody could give me a topic, and if I didn't have to, you know, solve a really complicated plot, I could just, you know, write, you know, an epistle or, you know, something as long as War and Peace. But. And I guess maybe for a final question. Which is more important to you, a good review or a fat royalty check? (laughs) That's a good question. What's more important? Well, you know what? They're both very important, and they both go hand in hand. But, you know, honestly, I think artists are always, no matter how successful you are, we're always insecure because whatever, you know, media, medium we're working in, it's kind of like a baby, you know, it comes from your heart and your soul, and you're always um, putting that out there to get criticized. So I guess, you know, deep down, I would say the review is really important, and, you know, knowing that people enjoy what I do and I'm providing entertainment for them is a really wonderful feeling. I love that. What does your family think about what you do? Well, they're, they love it. They think it's amazing. I mean, it's really fun. They, they knew I was going there. They knew PJ was going there. So it was just, um, you know, kind of assumed. It's like, oh, of course I'll be writers. But, you know, the um, success has, you know, been really thrilling for family and friends both. So they're super supportive. They never said, oh, that's so stupid. Go be a lab tech. <laughs> and I'd like to say thank you to PJ Tracy for nine books. The newest one again, PJ? The Guilty Dead, out September 11th. Consider taking a look at it. It's guaranteed to be a good read. Thank you, PJ Tracy. Do you have a website? Yes, it's pjtracy.com. And I'm also on Facebook at PJ Tracy Author. Thank you, PJ Tracy. Thanks, Peter. Take My pleasure. care. You too. And you're bye. Listen- and bye. And you're listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. The sun is starting to shine. The temperature's starting to climb. Stay cool. We'll be back in just a bit. And you're listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. 
My name's Peter Solomon. And I'm pleased to welcome now author Michael LeMay, his new book, U.S. Immigration Policy, Ethnicity, and Religion in American History. Good morning, Michael LeMay. Good morning. Has, I don't think there's a topic with the possible exception of the Russia investigation that has been so on the government's mind and the public's mind as this whole question of immigration policy. Do you agree? Yes. Uh, uh, immigration has always been um, prominent in American politics, uh, but it waxes and wanes in terms of uh, how intense the feelings are. And right now we're in a period of fairly intense attitudes regarding immigration. But there's that lady sitting in New York Harbor, give me your tired, your poor. Whatever happened to that? <sighs> it's kind of ironic, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, we we inscribed that at the foot of the, the, the Statue of Liberty. It's from a poem by Emma Lazarus. Um, at precisely the time we were beginning to restrict immigration, uh, people began to fear really when Southern and Eastern Europeans became, uh, came in large numbers, uh, literally millions uh, within a decade, for instance. Um, and they reacted by saying we have to control the number of people. We have to uh, reduce total immigration. And so we've passed various laws over the years to control who gets into the country and, and where they're from and why. It's not fair, though, because we hold out this promise, but we don't deliver. Yeah, but... There's a lot about laws that isn't necessarily fair. <laughs> it, the, the laws are reacting to a number of political pressures and different interest groups, some of which want to promote the ideals of of our country, uh, which would clearly, I mean, we are clearly a nation of immigrants, and we value, and I, I think we get so much from the immigrant influx into our country. Uh, we benefit from it far more than uh, it costs. But different groups are affected by it here in the native stock in our native population, and many of them fear that change or fear the what they think is the competition for, for jobs or the lowering of wages. And so they react to their fear by uh, xenophobia, by fear of the foreigner, and, and try to re- restrict that flow by passing or getting Congress to pass immigration laws to restrict the flow. As you look back in history for the book, what's the first attack, if you will, on immigration that you can think of? Okay, I I distinguish uh, over 200 years of time, six different periods um, or eras, as I call them, of immigration policy, each of which I characterize by a, a door image. And the first one uh, was the open door era, and it started in 1820. Uh, that marked that year because that's the first time we passed any law uh, to deal with immigration at all. And it, it was called the enumeration law. It simply counted the number of people coming in as permanent resident uh, aliens, as immigrants. Um, and that was the first time we kept track of them. Up to <clears throat> prior to that, people just came. And, they got off the boat at wharfs and and came into uh, the country, and we had absolutely no laws to governing their entrance. Um, and and so the 1820 law was the first time we started to keep track of them. 
Okay. At what point did the citizenship test get in there? Well, 1790 actually was the first uh, law that uh, passed by Congress to regulate naturalization. And again, it changed over over time, um, sometimes requiring uh, longer periods of time, up to 14 years for a short period of time, that was the law. But mostly it's settled on five years, that you have to be resident in the United States for five years before you can naturalize. The actual time that most uh, immigrants are in the United States before they actually naturalize um, it probably averages seven years. Um, because it just it takes comp, you know, it's a complicated process and, and it takes a while. <laughs> well, but it's been suggested to me that there are many native-born Americans who couldn't pass the immigration test. Yeah, that that's true. I'm I, I'm sure that there would be a lot who couldn't. And it's not that the test is necessarily um, rigorous. It's just often focuses in on minutia of, of history and that people just don't know or remember and uh, the immigrants have to study it uh, often in classes kind of that are prepared for studying to prep to uh, prep them for that that immigration exam or naturalization exam and if you come over to have to study for the exam and english isn't your first language and i would guess the materials are all in english you're in trouble. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And and learning of English is one of the criteria. You you have to be uh, uh, literate enough in English to be able to uh, basically uh, you know uh, conform or be able to you know enter into our economy, etc. So um, so the language skill is a, is a part of the naturalization exam. And after that 1820 open door, that policy, you know, with the door, yes. what, came, what came next? Well, the, the 1820 to 1880 period, because it's open door, has very few restrictions. That's why we mean open door. There was uh, a couple laws regulating the health of uh, persons, um, but there was no restriction on where they were coming from, for instance, no national origins part. Uh, and then in, in 1880, they passed the first uh, laws, the Chinese Exclusion Act, where we began to increasingly have categories of excluded groups, people that we weren't going to let in. Some of that had to do with health. Some of it had to do with what we would call moral standards, I guess, today. Uh, we, we could not immigrate to, to be a prostitute, for instance. Uh, you. Uh, some of it had to do with, uh, most of it, in fact, had to do with your ability to earn a living, not to become a public charge. Um, and that, so that was the door ajar area. We begin to close the door uh, with in, in, more restrictions. And then we go into 1920 to basically 1965, and that era I call the... Uh, Pepdor era, and that's the National Origins Quota Act, where we restrict numbers very heavily, very strongly, uh, cut the immigration by over half, for instance, during that decade from previous times. And uh, also it restricts who 
can come from where and based on the the country of origin so it was, it was designed intentionally to decrease immigration from southern and central uh, and eastern european countries and uh, promote it or make it easier if they were coming from northwestern european com countries Okay. And that's at the time when racism begins to develop in the United States, this concept of race. So they literally re referred to the Greek race, the Italian race, the Russian race, uh, in, in a way we wouldn't today, uh, but that in the 1880s and 1890s, that's the way they thought about it. Uh, you mentioned the Asians. Is that period where the Asian exclusion started, um, where, among other things, the concept of the yellow menace came Yes, uh, the yellow peril is, mm -hmm. is uh, or menace is the term they used. Developed out on the West Coast, California particularly, but also Oregon and Washington. And it started as early as the 1850s, and you had local laws or state laws trying to restrict immigration. But then you also had a, a national campaign, political parties like the, the Working Man's Party, whose uh, intention was to get Congress to pass a law to restrict first Chinese, and then they expanded it eventually to Asian exclusion to include the, the Japanese and the Koreans as well. But while they were doing that, I mean, I, I can be made perhaps a little crass and talk about they were building the railroads and doing the laundry. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, immigrants have always kind of found niches, uh, little places in our economy where their labor was needed and desired and where other Americans uh, were less, were somewhat reluctant, let's say, to go into those fields. And certainly the building of the railroads was absolutely, uh, immigration was essential to the immigrant labor force. So from the West Coast going east, um, it was primarily Chinese immigrants uh, in the tens of thousands who, who worked on building, constructing the railroads. And then from the East Coast going west, it was primarily uh, Irish immigrant labor that actually constructed the railroad, the first transcontinental railroad. Well, with the Irish immigration, um, two things. One, a lot of that was motivated by the potato famine, as I recall. Yes. In fact, from 1848 to 1852, about a million and a half immigrants came from Ireland. The island itself lost about half of its population, 50% of the population, um, half of those, uh, or 25% of the total, died from the famine and diseases that broke out because of the famine. And then the other 50% or 25% of the total uh, immigrated, not all to the United States. Some went to Australia, some to South America, some to Canada. But the vast majority of them came to the United States. And literally, we had about a million and a half enter in about five years' period of time. At what point did we develop places like Ellis Island? Well, that was opened in 1892, formally. Um, and uh, prior to that, uh, New York City was, was still the major reception 
area, and they came in through what was then called Castle Garden, um, and it was uh, on the on Manhattan Island uh, itself, and then the, in the Bowery area, and then they opened up uh, Ellis Island on the island in the harbor uh, as a better way to uh, process the immigrants. Particularly, there was great concern at that time about diseases, epidemic diseases. Uh, coming in with the immigrants, and so they wanted to inspect them and process them uh, at Ellis Island. And when we come back after this series of messages, so stay with me, please, um, Michael. Um, I want to ask Michael about a specific piece of Philadelphia history, because part of his book deals with religion, and there were the riots between Catholics and Protestants. Yes. Uh, we'll, the we'll, games we'll there, of Michael. New York film yeah. uh, depicts uh, that particular uh, period and event and movement, and it went on in in a number of major cities. New York, particularly, of course, but Philadelphia had some. Um, Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, most people don't kind of aware are not aware of the riots in Baltimore, but there were there were riots there as well, in which they um, burned down. Catholic churches and convents and stuff, and, and uh, violently uh, attacked uh, through gangs, uh, immigrants, uh, mostly at that time uh, Catholic immigrants, Irish Catholic particularly, um, uh, because they feared them, I guess, and just, just thought they shouldn't be allowed into our country kind of thing. Um, and uh, it, it became quite violent at times. There was a group called the Plug Uglies that at that time um, that often carried out the violence. Uh, They were sort of an offshoot of the uh, Know Nothing Party, which wanted to end all immigration. And uh, the Plug Uglies would go around and kind of attack people. Like sometimes, uh, well, during World War I, for instance, you had groups like that uh, go around and attack the Amish and the Mennonites. Um, because they were pacifists, for instance. Um, so we've had this attack on, on religious groups that were considered um, different and, and weird or strange or sects or cults and therefore dangerous to Christian America, um, which they weren't usually, but, but people felt that they might be or would be. Uh, and they, at times, violently persecuted them. It's, it's kind of ironic today, for instance, I'm, I live in Colorado Springs here, and focus on the family is very, very strong in this area. And they push uh, they, what they call the family values. And uh, ironically yet, they are supporting the Trump administration's crackdown on immigration, the zero tolerance, the separating of kids and children from their parents at our borders. And, and somehow they don't seem to see the irony or the, the conflict that they have with their values, their family values that they support, supposedly are, are organized to promote. We'll be right back after these messages, Michael. Okay. Le- Michael LeMay, author of a new book on immigration, religion, and history. The WIP Times, 737. And we're back with, with author Michael LeMay. His new book, U.S. Immigration Policy, Ethnicity, and Religion in American History. How much of it is so, Michael, as you look at history now, looking back, in hindsight is always twenty twenty. 
was motivated by racism and hate? Well, I think primarily economic uh, turmoil, economic conditions, recessions. They called them panics back uh, prior to in the in the 1800s, for instance. But uh, today we would refer to them as a recession or a depression, and the economic troubles. Uh, made people very anxious, and they found, if you will, the, the scapegoat of uh, blaming immigrants for whatever those economic troubles were. And so you had the racial attitudes that, that certain immigrant groups could not or should not be allowed to come to the United States or couldn't assimilate well if they came here, and that r resulted in laws to restrict them. The reason I ask is I'm old enough to remember when John Fitzgerald Kennedy was elected president and people were afraid the Vatican was going to take over American government. Yes. That's another example of what we're talking about, isn't it? It sure is. And, and incidentally, the, our current immigration law, uh, which is uh, the t official title of which is the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965, is more informally known as the Kennedy Immigration Act, uh, named after uh, John F. Kennedy. Now, he died before the act was, uh, was passed in Congress, but he pushed for it, and, and uh, uh, it was passed in part to honor the martyred president. Uh, and it set the preference system, which is our current immigration law. Has there ever been, in the past, any president, any administration that has been as intensely concerned about immigration as the current one? Yes, uh, I would argue that probably the next closest parallel to it would be uh, Millard Fillmore uh, before the Civil War. Uh, and uh, the American Party, which was specifically known as the, the Know Nothing Party, incidentally. And it was specifically anti-immigrant uh, and often uh, condoned violence or at least uh, extreme rhetoric against the immigrants. And then you have it a little bit of it again in the 1920s when we passed that National Origin Act. And again, it was there, it was more of a reaction to uh, World War One and post World War One concerns about people coming from uh, Europe and bringing quote the the problems of Europe to the United States, uh, but by clearly the Trump administration is the most anti-immigrant and anti-illegal immigrant uh, political force and president that we've had arguably ever in history, but certainly uh, since those very early 18, about mid-1800s. So that's a long period of time uh, before we get anything on this scale again. Anybody ever do anything like family se separations prior to Trump? Well, not really family separation, but we did have uh, the incarceration of the Japanese-Americans uh, uh, with the outbreak after Pearl Harbor, with the outbreak of World War II, where we rounded up 110 to 120,000 persons, um, 70,000 of which were native-born Americans. 
and we incarcerated, put them in camps because they were, quote, uh, we feared them as uh, a fifth column that would support a Japanese invasion or something. It was, it was largely racially based. It was really silly. Uh, a, a fear that was unfounded, I should say, um, but very real. real. And, and occasionally, anything that can cause that that degree of social anxiety almost always leads to anti-immigrant uh, fervor or attitudes in public opinion. And it's largely because the immigrant uh, is a good, convenient scapegoat uh, to to blame. Uh, for the troubles that they don't really cause, but uh, you know they they are a good target to put the blame on them. Yeah, lest we forget, though, was there also a roundup of German Americans? Yeah, but on much smaller scale, and uh, the, the German Americans that were rounded up there, the government had some evidence at least that they were involved they belonged to specific uh, pro-nazi uh, organizations in the united states the bund uh, german-american bund for instance uh, whereas with against the japanese it was clearly racial base uh, they just rounded them up because of their race they had no particular evidence or indication that they were in any way uh, a real threat that, that they were going to sabotage plants or anything like that. And, and, and that's, that's incidentally illustrated because in Hawaii, where there was a lot more uh, on the island of Hawaii, if there was going to be a problem, that would have been first showing up, if you will, on Hawaii. And they never incarcerated them or uh, did anything with the Japanese on the Hawaiian islands. It was only out in California. Hmm. And then today, thanks to 9-11, we have the issues surrounding Muslim Americans and Muslim immigrants. Exactly. And and it is like the anti-Jewish uh, immigrants uh, sentiment earlier or the anti-Irish um, Catholic uh, immigrant of, of the 1840s that we talked about already. It's, uh, again, a, they're a scapegoat, if you will. Uh, they are a, a convenient target when anxieties, in this case, anxieties caused by the terrorist attacks. So, I mean, there's, there's a factual basis for persons having some fear. But the, the extent to which we try to ban, for instance, all Muslims is just a... An, overreaction to uh, to any real threat. How much of this, though, can we look at the complicity, if you will, of the media? And the reason I ask that question is Molly Tibbetts, I believe her name was, the young lady yes. in, in the Midwest who was murdered by an illegal immigrant. A lot of people were talking about, he was an illegal immigrant and Molly would be alive today if he hadn't have been here. You know, and because he shot her. Um, how about all those native-born Americans who run around killing people like Molly Tibbet? We don't talk oh, about yeah. that. Yeah, right. <laughs> of course. But, uh, again, it, I, I keep coming back to this idea that when you have fear, whatever the reason, when, when in this case, stirred up often, I would argue, by the Trump administration, but when you have fear of the immigrant rising, they there's a degree of people who lash out at them. And the violence that, or violent rhetoric, if not actual physical violence, that 
develops around the the immigration and especially illegal immigration issue, uh, it becomes quote big news, and so the media covers it and and covers it and often in a way that sensa- sensationalizes it, makes the the threat far greater than it really is, or seem far greater than it really is. But who, that sells newspapers. Or, <laughs> yeah. Who did you write the book, U.S. Immigration Policy, Ethnicity, and Religion in American History for? Who do you want to read the book? Well, I, I, it's, it's li- primarily marketed for librarians, or, I mean, for libraries, for college and university and college students, but also the general public and people who are, who are interested. There are so many of us who are uh, sons or grandsons or great-grandsons of, of immigrants that I think many in the general public will find it very interesting. And anybody interested in just understanding American history as it, it modifies and changes. So this book weaves together, if you will, uh, this concept of of ethnicity, of national origins, where people are from, and the concept of religion and the trends, how they increasingly our American population diversifies, and then how immigration policy influences those other two trends, influences the diversity of national origin and or ethnicity and the diversity of religious affiliations of the American population. And I, I think it's just a very interesting topic. It's got a lot of human interest in it. Uh, the, the idea that people would pick up and leave their country of origin and come to another country, often of which uh, has a very different language and different economic basis uh, to make a living, etc., uh, and to, to live there. And it's interesting regarding religion. Very often groups that were were had animosity towards one another, religious animosity towards one another in Europe, um, would move to the United States and live peacefully side by side in, in our big cities, New York and Philadelphia and, and Boston and Baltimore, for instance, uh, uh, very peacefully side by side, having no trouble uh, getting along because the attitude of freedom of religion here in the United States was was so prevalent that it made a big difference. And it's one of the big attractions for immigrants coming to the United States. They were fleeing religious persecution elsewhere and came to the United States to have religious freedom. And, in fact, was one of the founding principles of this country in many exactly. of the states. Exactly. Well, also, in, in the interest of transparency, both my great-grandparents on both sides, immigrants, Italy and Eastern Europe. So Yes. I, I kind of guessed as much, <laughs> and that's true of me as well. And so, I mean, my my interest in immigration goes back literally to my childhood. My grandfather and grandmother on my father's side were French Canadian immigrants from Quebec, and my grandfather and grandmother on my mother's side were German immigrants from largely uh, from the area of northern Germany, what what at the time was Prussia or soon at, just after the reunification, but prior to the reunification would have been Prussia. And it, it's a kind of an ironic thing that from Germany, um, people from northern Germany, which is predominantly Lutheran at the time, um, more often they were Catholics from that area who came to the United States. And then those coming from southern 
Germany, which was predominantly a Catholic region. Uh, the Protestants were the first <laughs> to flee uh, or move from from Germany to the United States. And and I'd like to say thank you to my guest, Michael LeMay, author of the new book, U.S. Immig- Immigration Policy, Ethnicity, and Religion in American History. It's an important book to think about as we look to the coming election and the future of this great country of ours. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for having me. And it's been another edition of WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. Stay tuned for Sports Talk with Sunny Hill. Always provocative discussion. I'll be listening. And I want to say thank you to Phil Jackson, this morning's producer, and to Ann Tideman Solomon, my associate producer and dear wife. Couldn't do the show without either one of you. So nothing left to say, but stay cool and stay hydrated. See you soon.